Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Good morning, Rest Church! Man, um, can we as a church just celebrate our worship team? Um, this morning, man... Um, I just want to say thank you to them for uh, the preparation and stuff. You know, it doesn't happen by accident, in case you don't know. Uh, you don't sound that good by accident. Um, and, man, they just thank you for helping us be able to worship our Creator today. Um, have you guys ever wondered what it would be like to be a professional athlete? I'm sure you probably have, but to be traded. Like, not, not just, like, like, okay, so let's just say today I'm a mechanic, all right, and I work for Jiffy Lube, but across the street, um, you know, Pep Boys calls Jiffy Lube and, like, we'll trade you seven cases of Valvoline, you know, 5W20 for so-and-so, you know, like, it's a weird thing to think through. And there's one particular uh, trade that, that piques my interest that when I think about crazy radical trades and what that might feel like. is back in 2012, um, Ichiro, who was the leadoff batter for the Mariners, and if you know anything about baseball, you know about Ichiro, like he got on base like basically every single time. And um, the Mariners were basically still kind of are like the dumpster fire of baseball and at that time he's like the most beloved player in Seattle on their team and so they having the dumpster fire season that they constantly have they decide to trade each row but they don't just trade him they trade him to the team that they're going to play the next day and not just going to play the next day but to play the next day at home in Seattle and this particular moment is a surreal moment. Ichiro comes to bat for the single worst baseball team ever created. You know, borderline demonically possessed, the New York Yankees. And the crowd there in Seattle begins to stand to their feet. And you can catch this on YouTube, it's actually kind of really surreal because he's a really humble guy, you know, uh, from Japanese culture, just 
has that very humble personality. And he, he, he tries to go to bat as if nothing has happened and the crowd is just thunderously roaring in a standing ovation to the point that he finally steps out of the batter's box and, box. and what you see here is him to take kind of that bow and, and that way of saying thank you to the team. But can you imagine what that is like? It's not like you just changed jobs. It's not like you just decided you're going to work in a different place. But this guy who has spent years of his life fighting for Seattle, who, who has been, you know, longing every day to win for the team that he's playing for, but he's also built up all of these relationships with the guys on the other side. Can you imagine what that feels like to all of a sudden be like, yeah, I want to beat my best friends? It's kind of a weird transition. It's a dramatic transition that, that we're going to kind of explore today as we look at a biblical transition that happens or should be happening in every believer's life. And so this morning we're going to continue on in our sermon series in um, the book of Romans. I have no idea what week this is. It's in the 40s, whatever. We've been doing it for a while, but Romans chapter 6 starting at verse 15, and we're going to read verses 15 through 19. So if you would open your Bibles with me, we're going to read Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. Here we go. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you were to present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves, once of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Church, let's pray. Father, Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask God that you would be here with us. That you would move in and through these words today. God, that you would illuminate your scriptures. That we would give you permission to reprove, to rebuke, to correct. To, to move us from slavery and bondage of sin to slavery and freedom in Christ. Lord, we thank you and we love you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Throughout the writings of Paul, we come to this constant theme. I, you could almost call it a trope, but I won't call it a trope because it has more meaning than your typical trope. But Paul does this seemingly very common occurrence where he, he begins to digest or he lays out a theological thought to only present us with a counter question after he's presented this theological thought. And he does this to help his readers digest these stiff, 
hard to follow theological concepts. Because while we have grown up in the church, while we have had the edification of the past history of the saints who've gone before us, we've learned all these theological terms, we, we've been in church, we've heard it, you've got to think these first century folks had never heard the concepts by which Paul is bringing forth. In fact, what we know, it's funny, Adam and I were talking about it last uh, Sunday as I was driving to the airport. I mean, Paul deals with these hard, tough things. So much so that in 1 Peter, Peter writes, he's like, hey, Paul's crazy smart. And what he says is like scripture and is sometimes is super hard to understand. That's not what Peter said, but it was very similar. It's, that's the Cody Revised Standard Version. Um, but but they're, they're hard, and so he, he poses these counter questions to help us begin to adjudicate, to, to grapple with what he's saying. And so it provides us kind of this mock front row seat to a debate that he is creating in the text. What's the debate? What's he, what's he doing in the debate? He is, he is setting up this mock debate that he knows that the retractors of this new theological understanding of New Testament gospel teaching would be objecting to him. Paul, having been a Pharisee, having been a, a, a person of the tutelage of the Rabbi Gamaliel, which is one of the greatest rabbis in all of, of Judaism, he knows the questions that will be asked, and so he brings forth these counter questions. And in Romans chapter 6, we find two kind of anchor counter questions. One is verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? He says, by no means. And then the second anchor in chapter 6 is verse 15. The one that we're going to deal with primarily today. And in verse uh, 1, the counter question that he raises is in response to chapter 5 of Romans. Which if you want to understand the Protestant view of um, of of regeneration, salvation, how we believe that we come to saving faith in Christ Jesus. That's done in Romans chapter 5, where Paul lays out the discourse of justification through faith alone. What does that mean? To be made just as if I have never sinned by believing, putting my faith in Christ Jesus. And so, after he deals with chapter 5, he poses this counter question in verse number 1 that essentially that he knew would be raised. Okay, if I am now saved by faith alone, I can do whatever I want, right? To which Paul says, negative, Ghost Rider, negative. And so, we come to verse 15 where Paul is dealing with a similar type thought. But in order for us to understand verse 15, we gotta, we got to fully grasp what he's setting the counter question against. So let's come back to what Pastor Johan taught on last week. And we're going to start at verse 12, and we're going to read to verse 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought to death, I mean brought 
from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now here is where the counter question is going to be posed from. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And so this last portion here that I have bolded, since you are not under the law, but under grace, Paul, being a rabbi, being a, being a person who is a Pharisee, knows the question that will be raised against this statement. And so here we are, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Much like earlier in chapter 6 and verse 1, we find a pregnant pause in this statement. We find this place of expectation, right? We see that he has posed a question that must be reconciled. It's like the Christmas present under the tree when you were five years old. I remember the year I got my Stretch Armstrong. Right? Where's my millennials at? Where you at? Where you at? I remember it was cold in our house that day. And in case you don't know what Stretch Armstrong is, it is this really soft toy that if it's cold, it is a deadly weapon. But I remember the longing expectation that I had to open that up so that my sister and I could grab the arms and the legs and could, could, could do like this. Like, did any of you guys ever do that? See, I was a jerk. I, I would grab it and be like, ha, 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 whoo. Anybody else with me? You, you, you picking up what I'm putting down? But yes. So we find Paul, much like that Christmas present, presenting us this expectation, this question that must be reconciled. And, and much like you know, what we find in the book of Galatians, there is this group of folks within the New Testament church who really, really, really struggle with this question. They struggle with this question. And, and the reason why is because what Paul is suggesting, they are seeing this decoupling from the law as lawlessness. Because for 1,400 years, from the time that Moses had went on to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, to lay forth the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that laid forth all the foundational teachings of Judaism as it stands even today, they believed that, that the law served as a fence to prevent us from finding sin. And so to remove the fence is essentially full-blown anarchy, pandemonium. And so Paul knows that the Judaizers, that the folks in the New Testament church are hearing what he's saying and going, hold on, there is no way this is possible. If the law's not constraining us, essentially, is what Paul gets at. If the law is not gatekeeping us, does that mean we can do whatever we want? Does that mean we can run amok? The response is emphatic. In fact, 
he expresses absolute denial to that thought. That if we are decoupled from the law, I can live however I want. I can do all the things that my flesh desires. He emphatically, absolutely denies this thought. We see in this particular verse, he says, by no means. By no means. It would be repugnant for us to suggest anything other than we are coupled to Christ, therefore we follow the law of Christ. In fact, in the, um, in the Greek, the phrasing that I have there for you to see, it is getamai may getamai. It is a phrase. Getamai may getamai. It is the most absolute denial of a phrase that the Greek can offer. It's almost as if Paul, speaking at the notion of the thought or the question that would be raised against him, has the megaphone is, and, and is shouting through that megaphone, get a my, Meg, get a my. By no means. Paul doesn't take long to get to the point. He's not beating around the bush. He's not taking the long way to the outhouse here. He is getting right to the point. Here's the point. You can either be a slave to sin or a servant to God, but you cannot be neither and you cannot be both. I want you to, I want you to let that percolate inside of your heart today. Because... You know, while I am, while I, am I, I am licensed and ordained into a Southern Baptist background, while I am an affirming believer in the eternal security of the believer or in poor folk, backwoods, missionary, Baptist speak, once saved, always saved, while I believe wholeheartedly that the Scriptures teach that, is we hear that teaching and we say that's a license for me to do whatever I want as long as I ask for forgiveness. And that's Paul's get him I may get him I by no means. You can either be a slave to sin or a servant to God, but you cannot be neither and you cannot be And Paul will continue this thought for the remainder of chapter 6. In fact, what we're going to see, verse 16, we see this, we're either slaves to sin or slaves to or of obedience. Verses 17 and 18, slaves to sin or slaves to of or to righteousness and then verse 20 and 20 or through 22 we're going to be slaves to sin or slaves to God and so Paul is going to continue to exfoliate this conversation to bring up this imagery for us to deal with and the concept is simple why does he do this i need you to hear this i want you to grasp this thought everyone is a slave to something or someone Man, if you've ever struggled with an addiction, you know 
what I'm saying is true. No matter how far you run from that particular thing, it is constantly trying to call you back home. Everyone is a slave to something or to someone. And you might be sitting there in denial going, no way, Jose, am I a slave? Let me tell you what that means for you. That just means you're well-adjusted with being a slave. You are comfortable with your position to your Lord, whatever that may be. Everyone in this room, all of us, are offering ourselves to someone. Everyone lives for something. We offer ourselves as sacrifices to some altar. I don't know what that altar is for your life, but we are all to some degree offering ourselves as a sacrifice to some altar. We're all serving some cause, some bottom line. And that something, whatever that might be, becomes our master, it becomes your master, and we become its slaves. We are controlled by that to which we offer ourselves. I, I, I can't speak what that is for you. For some of you men, it could be just tinkering on the two-stroke in your garage. You would never think of it as the altar in your life, but it is absolutely an altar because it is the place where you find yourself most commonly drawn, where you find yourself in the most deep satisfaction of your life. For some of you women, it could be as simple as scrolling on your phone or going and constantly buying new pairs of shoes. It could be having a conversation about Talking bad about other people. Because let's be honest, sometimes it feels good to talk bad about other people. I don't know what that altar is, but we are controlled by that to which we submit ourselves, church. Whether you call yourself religious or not, you might have walked into this place and said, hey, I'm here for so-and-so. I don't care about anything they say. I don't care about anything they do. You, the reality is, is whether you submit to Christ as Lord or not, whether you are religious or not, we all have a God. We all are worshipers. We're really, really good worshipers. If you take a survey of your time, you will find what you're worshiping. If you take a survey of where you spend your money, you will find what you're worshiping. If you take a survey of the things that make you angry, you will find what you are worshiping. Verse 16 brings forth this idea we are either slaves to sin, we are slaves to our flesh, slaves to our natural proclivities, our desires, or we are slaves to obedience in Christ. We submit to the one whom we obey. 
And today comes down to this, this parsing, this nuancing of this idea. It is not just merely this intellectual thought. Paul is essentially suggesting to us that we can no longer be intellectually submissive to God and yet be submissive in all these other areas of our life because God does not share space. He doesn't do roommates, man. He doesn't sleep on the couch. He's always in the master suite. And so the question is, is is your faith, is it this intellectual faith which allows the natural desires of your heart to run wild and loose in every way? Man, when you start to understand the gravity of this question, this plight, this counter question that he has asked, there is so much to unpack. And it comes down to this main point that I'm going to talk about over and over today. It is this, neither sin nor grace stand still. Neither sin nor grace stand Stand still. Our pursuit for joy and peace can never be dormant. Can never be dormant. There is no off season or summer break in the kingdom of God. Because we are by nature worshipers. We are continuously, constantly nourishing either our flesh and our flesh's desires. Or we are nourishing the spirit that lives inside of us to grow and manifest fruit. Spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. We're either feeding one beast or we are feeding the other. Because just as Pastor Johan talked to us last week, we are this multi-part, multiplicit type of being. We are body, soul, spirit. And as long as we take residence in these bag of bones that we call home, we will have to put to death our flesh and feed our spirit. Neither sin nor grace stand still. If we feed our flesh... It pulls us closer to death. If we feed our spirit, we experience the transforming power of eternal life found in Christ Jesus. Come to verse 17 with me. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We can hear the gratitude of Paul jumping off the page in verse 17. But thanks be to God! He is gracious because of the grace that has been applied and merited to him upon his confession upon the confession of all who believe we receive this grace this favor this freedom this forgiveness and his thanksgiving is because that through the blood of Christ we have power to overcome sin I need you to hear that because some of you today you're battling depression based on what you've done in the past 
based on the, the, the wrong decisions, the wrong choices that you've made in the past. Some of you today are battling addiction and you can't seem to get out of your own way. I need every one of you to hear me that through the blood of Jesus, we have the power to conquer our sin. Grace is not just a gift, church. It's so much more. It's so much more than just a gift. Grace not only justifies, but it transforms us. It is a supernatural power that lives inside of you. God, the Holy Spirit himself, is inside of you. And I don't know if you know this, but the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, man. And so if he can take a dead man and he can bring him back to life, man, he sure can crush your problems. Paul says to the church in Rome, anyone who would have ears to hear today, we were dead slaves. Without hope. Without future. But through the grace of Christ, we are not only alive, but we can thrive in every circumstance. We are not just made alive. We are not. I, I was thinking about this tribing here this morning. You know, some of the Christians, you know, we, we have this idea of being brought from death back to life. But it's like we're, we're extras in the walking dead. Like your spiritual life is this staggering and this stumbling. And, and, and you're not living in the fullness of Christ. Because you're constantly moving back to that which you were supposed to kill. You're feeding your flesh. You're feeding your desires. And so because of that, man, you're just like this zombie out here running. Yeah, you have a little bit of a heartbeat. Yeah, you kind of look like you're alive. But you're not living and thriving in the work of Christ. And you sit around and you say, oh, I wish I could hear God's voice. Oh, I really wish I knew what I was supposed to do. Is he the right boo for me? Paul is telling us that we're not just alive, but we are supposed to thrive. That's how he can write to the church in Philippi. I have learned to be content in every situation. I have learned in in prison and in calamities. I have learned in hunger and in need. I have learned when I am abounding that I can do all things through Christ. Who gives me strength, man? That's what it means to thrive in Christ. It's, it is so much more than we want to give it credit for being. And, and when I thought about this... Um, I made up my own theological phrase, just in case you don't know. Um, you know, the theologian got my pipe out. Anyways, uh, as I thought through this, I, can't, I, I was like, man, there is a difference between intellectual obedience to following Christ and regenerated obedience to following Christ. 
And Paul says this in the, in the phrase in, in chapter, I mean, verse 17, where he says that they were obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. Obedient from the heart. This is this regenerated obedience. And essentially, you, you could say it wholeheartedly obedient. More than intellectual belief, it is a personal faith. It is a constant walking in the spirit of repentance. Like, I'm going to be honest with you. Some of us today are here because our parents brought us to church. Now, you're an adult. Make no mistake about it. You're still showing up. But there's no gold stars on a tracking chart here. Like, you just showing up, there is no prize, there is no merit badge, there, there is no data boy. Like when you get to heaven, your church attendance, for lack of better terms, won't matter. Because it's not a good and righteous deed. We come to the, the presbyteriate, the body of believers. We come to this place so that we can, we can live in community, gospel community, so that we can be spurred along, so that we can be lifted up, and so that we can praise the name of Jesus collectively. Is it a command? Absolutely. But this is what I, I don't want you to miss this. Is that some of us are stuck in intellectual obedience Instead of regenerated obedience. You haven't taken a personal hold of your faith. Your faith is still stuck in the lures of your great grandparents, your grandparents, your mom and dad. But at some point you have to make that transition from intellectual obedience to that of regenerated obedience. Because when you stand before God, he's not going to say, hey, did grandpa go to church? No, he's going to say, what about your faith? And it's really going to come down to, do you know him as Lord and Master, or do you not? Not just, hey, yep, I, 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 I think I believe. Those whose, um, the knees of their heart, who has been bent at the foot of the cross, they completely grasp the, the gravity at which Paul is getting at here. If your faith is not more than this one-time prayer where you walk down the aisle and, and you did the whole repeat-after-me thing with the preacher, or it's this one-time event that you just show up to church on Sunday mornings, I, I, I'm going to say this as graciously as I can, and, and I need you to hear this, because it, and, and it's not just me saying this. If that is your faith, you don't have Christian faith at all. Now, you might take up offense to what I just said. You might say, preacher, you don't know me. You don't understand my plight. You don't understand where I come from. How dare you judge me? I thought God didn't judge. Yeah, that's not really what he said. Not really what he said. He said for us not to judge those who don't call themselves Christ followers. But those of you whom he, who call themselves Christ followers, he absolutely tells us to judge you. So, if you don't have a faith that is growing and flourishing and has transitioned from intellectual obedience to that of regenerated obedience, man, I want to tell you, today is the day for you to repent and to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. 
as simply put as I possibly can because the truth of the matter is if you die, you will go to hell. And it scares the mess out of me that in the Bible Belt, especially here in western Kentucky, there are lots of folks who are going to heaven based on a single prayer and their lives never looked any different and they will split hell wide open because of that prayer. We got to be wrecked by that. We have to understand the truth of what the gospel is calling us to do. The faith explained in the New Testament is a faith wherein the gospel truth has penetrated our hearts and has manifested real life change. Life change. Regenerated obedience is not simply that our allegiance has changed. In Christ, our entire identity has been altered. You have a new DNA. You have a new name. You have a new mindset. Everything about you has changed. While your flesh may want to drag you back to where you have done, and you will fall. Man, you will fall. But it will make you sick at the fact that you have fallen. You're no longer okay or well-adjusted with your sin. You despise it. And not just that, you are taking it to task and doing war against it so that you might have the power to subdue it. That is obedient faith that regenerated obedience. And in verses 19, Paul understanding the limitations of the folks who he's speaking to. Understanding that, you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't sign up for a seminary class, which although this is the book of all books when it comes to writing and digesting, understanding that, he gives this constant reminder of a physical example that the folks in Rome could understand. And he deals vividly with slavery. And I want to point this out. I'm not going to spend much time on it. But the word here in the Greek is doulos, which does not translate to the same type of slavery as you understand today. It was a bond servant, someone who owed a debt, sold themselves into that slavery in order that they might be able to pay it back. And so they would go into this, this indentured servanthood until their debt was paid. And a lot of times what happened is they would actually um, stay under their master. They would stay under their, basically their debt collector, and they would be a forever servant of them. And so kind of different, I'm not going to get into that, but this imagery here that Paul is dealing with, the folks in Rome were keenly aware of what he's getting at. The development of slavery to sin and slavery to righteousness or slavery to God are very similar. They're very similar in the fact that both of which are taking us somewhere. I want all of us to grasp this. Both. Slavery to sin, slavery to righteousness are taking us somewhere. As we see in verse 19, neither one stands still. There it is again. Neither sin nor grace stand still. We are either moving towards death because of our sin or moving to put to death our sin, thereby moving towards obedience. There's never 
this time where you're just kind of meh, hanging out. So maybe you say, okay, I get the point, get to the point. What are the telltale signs that we are feeding our flesh or we're feeding our spirit? I just want to say I'm sorry for all you flesh people over here. I know I keep pointing at you, but whatever. (laughs) We are slaves to sin when we are me-centric. If I could break it down in the simplest of terms, we are slaves to our sin. We are bowing at the altar of sin, some sort of sin, some little G-God, when we are typically me-centric. What I want, what I need, or this is how that makes me feel. Or maybe you're asking, when is it my turn? Why can't I have this yet? And even sometimes, we cloak it very subtly, and we make excuses for it. I want you to to think about this. Maybe you're like, no, that really wasn't lust. I'm just a man who enjoys beauty. That really wasn't gossip. It was just a really, really detailed prayer request. I'm not on an ugly quest for personal power. No, I'm just exercising my God-given talents. God has made me to lead. I'm not cold-hearted and stingy. I'm just trying to be a good steward of what God has given me. I wasn't being proud. I just didn't want anybody else to try to take credit for my work. See, the difference between the law and the Torah and the law of Christ is huge. See, we always act like, oh, thank God we're not under the law. But what we don't realize is that the law of Christ surmounts the law of Moses. See, the the law of Moses was about just our actions. But the law of Christ made it about our motives. See, you can be obedient on the outside and be utterly sinful on the inside. And the law of Christ calls us to put to death not just our actions, but our mind, our feelings. And these very cleverly cloaked things that we're all very well adjusted. And we'll say things like, well, that's just the way I am. I was raised like that. I give people my opinion. Can we all be honest? That's sin, bro. That's sin. Like, you can tell right, right, and you can call wrong, wrong. But the Bible absolutely tells us there is a right and a wrong way to do it. And not just right and wrong way to do it, there is a right and a wrong motive by which we do it. 
Like there are times that, man, you absolutely should be angry. There, the Bible calls for righteous anger. But we need to check and make sure that that motive comes out of the spirit of God and not out of our flesh wanting to lay hands on people. Right? And so we have to be very careful in not just being good Pharisees, good law keepers who look real good on the outside but are throwing daggers all around because we've cloaked and we've insulated ourselves to where we don't allow the Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts. And so I want to ask you have, you, have you potentially been building kind of a panic room, so to speak, around some of the phrases that I just said? Like, yeah, you, you're like, man, I, I've really conquered the whole don't sleep with other people's wives. I've really conquered the whole, I can go to the bar and have a beer instead of 17. Like, you're, you're like, I've conquered that. Great. Now, let's conquer your anger. And let's, let's not just conquer your anger that everyone sees. Let's see that conquer the anger that's in your heart. The anger that only the Holy Spirit sees, hears, feels, and touches. And so, so when we ask that question, what is your master? What are you sowing into? Man, if, if some of the things I've said to you, it sounds like, man, you, you are absolutely, unbeknownst potentially to you, you are sowing into your flesh, your sin. When we are slaves to righteousness, we are God-centric. I love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to fall on the sword here for you. Pastor was in the airport this week. I did not love my neighbor as myself. I did not. I absolutely did not. The long lines, and the people cutting everybody off, and seeing injustice happen. Man, loving our neighbor as ourselves isn't just about convenience. It's not just when it's convenient to us. It absolutely comes down to the times when it is inconvenient for us. I will love my neighbor as myself because it brings glory to God. I'm willing to go last. I'm willing to have the upgrade to my office last. I'm willing to be the last one in our family who gets the new clothes. I'm willing to let someone eat my lunch because they don't have any. I am willing to go last. How about this one? I will serve even when my back and feet hurt. I will deprive myself even when it means I might have to suffer. Paul lays this idea of this standard of teaching, which is the gospel that has been laid out, that it leads to this regenerated obedience that moves our heart. Not just, not just we do it compulsory, but it moves our heart because we are in love with God, with our creator, and that is the wellspring through which the fruit of our life is manifested. Not for the appearance of people, but for our God. And he, he calls this process of making us righteous, becoming slaves to righteousness as sanctification here in verse 19. 
We've talked a little bit about sanctification, and I have a cool graphic to help you understand where it falls and all that. And you've seen it before if you've been around in Romans. It's the process of dying to oneself. It's the idea of constantly being set apart and made holy. And it's the second step in the regenerative process of salvation. And so what we have, we have first, we have regeneration where we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. And at that moment, just right then and there, regeneration lasts that long. We are saved. And then from that regeneration to the next, which is glorification, is the entire process of sanctification, which is this every day putting to death your your flesh, yourself, your wants, your needs, desires, to walk in the light of Christ, to manifest the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And so he says, this is the way for us to become sanctified, to be set apart for Christ. So how do we respond to this text? Like, what's the ask? What's the, what's the question? I think number one for us is to remember the price for your freedom. Remember the price for your freedom. Because if you can't be stirred in the remembering and the gratitude of the blood payment that was spilled for you to be saved, as as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, That God the Father made him who knew no sin to become sin. That he became us on the cross. That he took our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we could have dominion, power, authority over the things that ail us. So that we could have freedom and we could have hope. If that does not stir you, if it doesn't urge you to move more to Christ, I want to I invite you to meet Him today. Because when you remember the price that was paid for you, it should invoke a response from us. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says essentially to this thought, this theme, he says, hey, remember you were bought with a price. Live like you were purchased. life for him we should put to death our sin and the second thing man oh man gosh I feel like I'm in an Andy Griffin episode oh golly I gotta tell you live like you are free like some of you man I just want to walk up to your hands and I just want to shake you and be like you are free Live in the freedom of Christ. Because because you're not a New Testament person. You're more like Eeyore, man. Oh. And and, and maybe you're like, you don't understand. But I I want us to come back to verse 18. Come back to verse 18. 
And, church, let's read these next six words together. Having been set free from sin. Hold on. Let's read it again. Having been set free from sin. set free. Sin no longer can force you to do anything. Your selfish motives and desires can be put to death at the foot of the cross if you submit your life to Christ. You have been set free. So live in the freedom that is Christ Jesus. Live in the freedom that you now possess. And, and, and you, I, I can hear you because I say it all the time, but you don't understand the depths of my sin. You don't understand the things that draw me out of my place of freedom and draw me back to my place of bondage and fear. Oh, but I do. Oh, but I do. But I cling to James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, where, where James writes to the people, and then he says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, and draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We have a God who runs after his sheep. We don't have a feeble God and you don't have a feeble spirit. We are free. And if we are free, we should look different. We should sound different. We should worship differently. It should invoke a fire inside of us. This is, I can't live like this anymore. I want His Spirit to consume me. I want my marriage to be different. I don't want to just look at my wife and say, I'll just get through another day. I'll just get through another day. I want to be madly in love with her. And I want her to be in love with me. And you know how you do that? Die to self, man. Die to self. Quit arguing over petty things. Forgive quickly and move forward in the spirit of the freedom that you have. You say, I want to be a better parent. Well, let me tell you this. Stop being so angry all the time. Like, you've got to come to grips with the fact that your kids just get on your nerves because you're, let's be honest, you kind of suck. You're probably poke. Did he say that? Yes, I did. Because I kind of suck sometimes. I'm short fused when I should be long fused. I, I get angry over things that really don't matter. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's where it starts. Resist the devil. Right there. That's where it starts. 
The power is there, but you must be connected to the power source.